today, it's like we're coming to that point in the flight where this, the stewardess or the attendant, flight attendant, comes on the, the loudspeaker and says, we're, uh, we're coming in for landing. Um, we are, we're starting our initial descent. I guess that would be the pilot, technically. Um, and that's what we're going to do is, is we're, we're coming in for a landing in this sermon. There's three messages after this, this one. Um, and um, the next three will be brought to you by Pastor Adam. And if you have not yet heard Adam preach, then you want to be here. Um, because they are some of the hardest hitting. Like he's getting to the end of this message and he's going to bring you to a point where you have to decide. So that's where we're headed, and we're kind of starting that descent now, uh, beginning in verses 12, 13, and 14 uh, of Matthew 7. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. If not, then um, you can follow on the screen behind me. Let me pause and let's ask God to help us this morning. Gracious Father, you have told us through your son that apart from you, we can do nothing. That includes responding to your word. It includes change in our own hearts, in our own affections, to be more like Christ. We need you to take this word that you have given to us, and we, we need you to press it home. We need you, Father, to soften hard hearts, to soften calluses. We need you to more widely open the eyes of our hearts so that we can truly believe you, who you are, what you've done. So I ask that this morning, Lord. We need you to speak to us in a way that only you can do, that only your spirit can change us with. So please, I ask that on my behalf as well. We gather here as your people, your family that are part of your eternal inheritance. And we ask, Lord, please, in this time in which we live to speak, let your voice be heard this morning. And let me adequately convey what Jesus taught here in these verses. And I pray this in his mighty, awesome, and holy name. Amen. Well, some of you know that um, our men's ministry had an event this last June. We, uh, we climbed Mount Shasta on June 2nd. Um, we only had seven takers to climb that mountain. It's a, it's a big mountain, over 14,000 feet. And um, at first, when I consented to go, our illustrious leader, and I told him I was going to throw him under the bus this morning, um, told me that it's, of all the routes to go up to the top of Mount Shasta, the easiest. Now, I've, I've been up there before on what was, I thought, the easiest route, and it was a beast. I just, like they say, one in four make it, and I think the statistic is true. It's just, it's a beast. So when he said, this is the easiest route, I was like, okay, I'm in. So we gathered at the little town of McLeod, and some of the group went up um, partway up the mountain and camped on the snow, which sounded not fun to me. So me and another gentleman decided that we would go just get up at 12.30 and we'd start hitting the trail at, at 1.30. So we started at 1.30 thinking, of course, this is going to be the easy route. Well, it wasn't too long into our, our journey to the top um, that I realized that that was not the case. Like, we're, we're at the bottom side of a, of a long glacier, and I don't know how long it was, but you could see all the way to the top, and the people who were ahead of us climbing looked like little tiny ants, right? That, that's how far they were away. We're at the bottom, and... Um, 
we would climb, take 20 or 30 steps because you're at high elevation. Then you'd have to pause to allow your cardiovascular system to catch up. And I look up, and like an hour later, and those ant people are still there. I'm like, are they camping? Are they just having lunch? They're just, it seems like they're not moving. And, and the guys who are on that glacier know that this is the case. We were like, hike another hour, look up this big, long glacier, and it's the ant people are still there. And my head, I'm doing the calculations. It's like, they look like ants, and it seems like they're hardly moving. So how is it, how long is it going to take for us to get there? We're looking at hours of work. And not hours of passive work, but, you know, where your lungs are burning and your muscles are burning and your heart is pounding and you can only take 20 to 30 steps at a time. It took us a long time just to get to the top of a glacier at a place called Dump Rock, which I'm not going to go into why they call it Dump Rock, but it's Dump Rock. <laughs> it's what the climbers call it. And the sense is, because you can't see over Dump Rock, that that's got to be close to the top. That is its name. You get to that point, and you realize there's another glacier with another steep pitch. You get to the top of that one, there's another pitch. And then you get to the top of that one, there's a plateau. And at the end of that plateau is another steep pitch. So it's just kind of, it kind of like wears down your resolve, right? It's, it's like a snowman in summer. It just melts because it just wears you down. By the time we got back down after 16 hours, I remember thinking to myself, why did I do that to myself again? <laughs> and the, the idiocy in it all is I'll probably actually do it next year too because I'll forget about the pain and I'll do it again. But it was supposed to be the easy route. And I am going to, for years to come, give John Eckle a hard I'm sorry, did I just say his name? So it's like a hard time. That's, and I say that in, in a kind of a uh, playful, facetious, sarcastic sort of way. Because he actually hadn't climbed it either. Someone else told him it was the easiest route. On a serious transitional note, Jesus doesn't do that to us. Like when it comes to the Christian life, that is being a disciple, um, he gives us a preview of, of, of what's ahead. He likens the Christian life to a journey. Now, sometimes we tend to think that being a Christian is to associate with a group of Christians or to assent to belief in certain truths. To be clear, a big, important, necessary part of our Christianity is believing certain truth. But more important than what we believe is who we believe in. Like, truth is intensely relational. It's about who God is. And the Christian life really is, instead of just kind of the static thing, it is, it is this journey, it is this pilgrimage, it is this, this climb. And that's, that's what Jesus is pointing out. It's like, listen, you, you, you decide to follow me. This is the beginning of a journey for you. And it's not going to be an easy one. And he lays it out. What he does before he gets to the describing the climb is he gives to us a, an axiom, like a truism, like a proverb, um, a maxim to live by as we're on the journey. And many of you know this. It's one of the most popular sayings of Jesus, even in the unbelieving world, called the golden rule. And it's supposed to be a simple way of, of helping us, uh, uh, just a simple practical tool of living properly as we make our way down the journey. And so here's what he says. So 
Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I believe that this statement really is a summation of all of Jesus' previous teaching, especially as it relates to human-to-human relationships. That this is his way of saying, okay, to bring it to a simple point, figure out how you would like to be treated and treat others that way. The reason I think it's a sum is because of the little word so. It's like, so, like here it all is. After all this teaching, to give you something practical, simple to live by, and the Lord knows that we have an easy time uh, forgetting things. A simple way of summing up everything I've told you, and this you can take with you, you can actually remember this as you walk the Christian life, is to essentially the way I have it memorized is do to others as you would have done to you, right? A simple tool, a simple tool of love. It's functionally the same as love your neighbor as yourself because both fulfill the entire law. A very simple way and yet brilliant Right? Because this, this maxim, this, this tool, practical tool, gives us the ability to decide what love looks like in any number of contexts. Right? It, otherwise, you end up with a big old long list of if this, then that. Right? If someone cuts you off on the freeway, then do this. If someone blows a tire, then do this. If your wife speaks to you in a nasty tone, do this. You know, and we could just go on and on and on. If your boss is cranky, then do this. And we'd end up with a book that's like a thousand pages long, if not more, of if-then instruction. This simplifies it. And just like, how would I want to be treated in this situation? And therefore, that's how I'm going to treat this person. Right? It's, it's brilliant. It can be used negatively or positively to figure out what love looks like in the moment. And in terms of negatively, it helps us understand what we don't want to do to other people, right? Um, even some of Jesus' own teachings. Um, do you like it when you're judged by other people? I don't know of a single person who loves being judged. So, according to this, then don't judge. Do you like it when people lie to your face? No, you don't. So, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. You see, it's, if you were lost, what would you want? Desire, why well, I'd want someone to help me be found. That's, that's the negative, right? It helps you understand what you don't want to do to people. But Jesus puts it in the positive, which guards us not only against sins of commission, but sins of omission, which is failing to do what you know you should do. So... I'm standing in line at the grocery store, and it's one of those days where it's like everybody decides to show up at the same time. Ever, like, you know, it's like Super Bowl Sunday or something. It's like everybody forgets to get what they need, and everybody's in line. And there's this frail, I'm guessing she was in her 90s, um, elderly lady, and she was hunched over, and she's at the front of the line, and people are piling up behind her. And she pulls out her, I guess it was a debit card or credit card, I don't know which, and, and her hands are shaking. And she tries to put it in, right? 
And then, I don't know if she just can't read the numbers or she's just confused by, you know, um, the questions like, is this credit or is it debit? And then it asks you, is $12.99 enough? And, or is that what you're purchasing? And then you put in your PIN number. And all. She was completely confused. And the cashier is trying to help her, and I can tell she's completely confused. Meanwhile, behind me, the line piling up, I can hear these groans and these sighs. Now, this principle of do unto others as you would have done to you requires you to put yourself in another person's place. That's the only way it really works. Because I'm not an elderly, elderly woman, right? So I can't, I can't, how would I want to be treated as an elderly woman? Well, at this point, I'm putting myself in her place. I'm seeing her as me. And I remember thinking, man, you know, I'm going to be there someday. I probably won't make 90, but, you know, how would I want to be treated in that moment? I would want someone to be patient with me. Maybe spell it out in kindergarten form, because the day is going to come when technology is confusing to me. So if I was in that position, I'd want to be treated with respect and patience. And that's a point where a Christian says, hey, ma'am, can I help you? Or take all the time you need, I'm good. Right? Because that's how you'd want to be treated. That's positive. This fits in so many different ways. It's, it's just, like I said, it's brilliant. A way of figuring out love in, in the moment, what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. You put yourself in their place and, well, how would I want to be treated? And then you treat them that way. It works in the negative, it works in the positive. And Jesus means for us to practice this regardless of whether it's reciprocated. Right? It's like, I'll, I'll treat that person the way I want to be treated, unless they treat me bad, then I'm not going to treat them as I wish I was treated, right? That's not the way he wants us. He wants us to, to, to even though sometimes we feel that way, right? His roommate. I, I, I don't know what was going on in his head. He was going to a Christian college. He should have known better. It's just a simple principle like this, right? Love to wake up early on a Saturday morning and crush his soda cans. <laughs> I kid you not. And I'm sleeping on the sofa. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, like, it's Saturday. It's the only time we have to sleep in, and you're crushing cans at 6 in the morning. Like, do to others as you would want done to you. I'll tell you what. I'm going to set my alarm clock earlier than you get up, and I'm going to get those same soda cans, and I'm going to crush them next to your head and see how you feel. That's not how we're supposed to practice this, right? Because that is called retaliation, which Jesus already prohibited, right? End of chapter 5. So... It's, we're just, it's a way of just positively figuring out what love looks like in the moment. And, and, and it works. But I do have to make an important caveat, the one that you know I need to make. Just knowing this simple mechanism, it, which requires on-the-spot reflection and thinking, what does it look like, right? But it's help, helpful, very simple but helpful. Doesn't mean that because I know it, now I can do it in and of myself, Right? The, the verses immediately previous to this were about how important it is to ask, seek, and knock, which is coming to the Father saying, I need help. That is to say, this principle is one that is exercised and practiced in dependence upon God and his grace. All right, Lord, sometimes things frustrate me, and I, this is, I know how I'd want to be treated, and I know I need to treat this person that way, but I don't really want to, so you can help me. It's still hard. So here you have a kind of a summary statement as to how can you learn to live and love people on the way, on the journey, on the path. This is a way to take it with you. Then he transitions, and they, these are connected. He transitions to how difficult the path is. This is the 
might call it the path of love, and I'll, hopefully I'll be clear on why I've turned with that. He says, again, very, very well-known verses. He says, enter by the narrow gate. There's the command. For, and there's a couple of reasons given for entering by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For, and this is another reason, for the gate is narrow and the way it is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So, he says there's two routes, two roads, two ways, each which I think in terms of the picture begin with a gate. There's not three, there's not four, there's no GPS alternate route. There's just two. And here is where he's going to start pressing his disciples, the people who are gathered around him, to choose which you're going to walk on and to challenge them to think, which one am I on? There's only two. The first one, he says, is, is, is the broad one that is described as both easy and popular. Those who enter by it are many. Both of those things, ease and popularity, both are appealing to the human heart. Right? Me going up Shasta. Come on, can't we find an easier way? Who wants to take the hard way? That's just natural. You want the, who wants to make it hard on yourself? Take the easy way. It appeals. This is the easy route. And everyone's taking it. This is the way culture is going. This is the way society is going. Everybody's doing it. Is it so bad to be a part of that? The broad road? Fit in? That's what your peers are doing? And it's important to recognize that Jesus is giving this teaching to his disciples. He's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to people who at least some level believe in him. They're sitting there. They're called disciples at the first part of chapter 5. Which I think means that there will be disciples who think they're on the narrow road when in fact they're on the broad road. And the, the, the paragraphs that follow this, when, when you get to the people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things in your name? And he says, I never knew you. The sense is, and the, the kind of the intent of these two roads is to get you thinking as disciples, which one am I on? Because it's really easy to wear the costume, you know, like Halloween, costume of a disciple. You kind of look like it on the outside. You say the right words, and you come to church, and you bring your Bible, and you show up at small group. But inside, your heart is driven by the same things that drive the world. And Jesus talked about some of those things. Money, concerns about earthly things, um, So that you look like one thing on the outside, but in fact you're driven by something quite different. That's broad road living. And the poster child of that broad road living is Judas Iscariot, right? He was with Jesus. He was counted as one of the disciples. He at some level responded to him. But he didn't come to Jesus for Jesus' sake. He didn't come to Jesus because he saw in Jesus the all-satisfying treasure of God or the truth and the salvation of one's soul. 
but rather he came to Jesus for what tangible earthly things Jesus could provide. He was the treasurer of the group of disciples. And other texts tell us that he helped himself to the money. In other words, he saw Jesus as a means to wealth at some level. And of course, the final sellout in the end for 30 pieces of silver just proved the point. And there's a whole popularized version of the gospel that essentially does the same thing. It's like, listen, if you come to Christ, then he will grant you, if you have faith enough, the wealth you seek, the success you seek, and the prosperity you seek, which is no different than what Judas does. He is coming to Jesus for what he can provide in terms of earthly significance, popularity, whatever it is, but not Jesus himself or his kingdom. It's broad road living. It's easy to be there. To, instead of being wholly surrendered, imperfect, but wholly surrendered to God, we are selectively or conveniently obedient. Right? I I like this about the teaching of Jesus and this, don't so much like that, so I'm going to select this and this because it's convenient to my life. That, to me, is broad road living. You, you take them for what you like, and you reject the rest. And the reason it's so bad, the reason that Jesus tells us not to go down that path is because I just picture a river, you know, and rafters going down a river, like the broad road river. And at first, it's kind of just a lazy river. People are on their rafts, and they're having fun, popping champagne and eating cheese and olives and pickles and having a great time, but they don't notice that the current's starting to pick up because they're having too much fun. They're distracted, and pretty soon they're in rapids that they can't get themselves out of, and at the end is this waterfall from which no one survives. He's saying this, this, this road which a disciple on the outside, but an earthly person on the inside, goes over the edge just the way of destruction. And destruction is not annihilation. Destruction is to survive and be consciously aware of an existence and be in an existence devoid of God's love, devoid of his goodness, and devoid of everything associated with it, which is everything in creation. Not a place you want to be. As much as the concept and the reality of hell is unpopular in our culture, at some point, everyone's going to realize it was true. He said, don't go down that road. And this should kind of shake us a little bit. It shakes me. It's like, okay, Dan, I got to reanalyze my life. That's what it's supposed to do. He said, no, instead, he said, there's, there's one route. It's the route you need to take. And it is harder It's difficult, it's narrow, it's not wide, and it's the road less traveled. It's the unpopular one, the one that goes against the grain. That's the one you have to take because it's the only way that leads to life. That's it. No alternate routes. Few there be that find it. Now, that doesn't mean that there are only going to be a few people in heaven. It just means comparatively. I mean, we know in the 
book of Revelation that I saw multitudes and multitudes beyond count that were standing with white robes on. So there are going to be a huge community in heaven from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But comparatively to the population that has ever existed, it's going to be small. That's what he's saying. So the question is this. What is it about this narrow road that he's calling us to travel that is so difficult? Why is it that there are few people that find it? It's a really important question. Is it just because Jesus says it is? At least two reasons. It's going to be a hard road for the disciple because of who Jesus declared himself to be and why he came, his identity and his mission. What do I mean by that? Who Jesus declares himself to be, the world reacts to with utter hostility. That is, if Jesus was just a teacher like other other teachers, if his words were mild, relativistic, take-it-or-leave-it advice like Ann Landers or Dr. Phil, I don't think people would have a hard time with him. He'd just be one of many others. Switch the channel if you don't like it. But that's not who Jesus declared himself to be. Listen to these words, and you've heard them before, but let's just give them a little emphasis. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an absolute statement. It's unequivocal. It is clear. It's explicit. He's like saying, listen, there's no no alternative routes to God except through me. The world hates that. Like, who, who are you? How pretentious for you to say that. Well, he's not pretentious because he's not pretending. It's like, I am the truth. I'm not a truth. I am the truth by which all other truth claims are measured, weighed, and found wanting. See, he's in a category all by himself. And as as followers of Jesus who take him based upon his own self-description, we embrace the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life that no one gets around him. Right? Therefore, not only do we believe it, we are required to proclaim it. That makes us unpopular. It makes it hard. You, you, you go into any secular university, get on a mic and say that, and I see what happens. <laughs> because people want religion that's tailor-made, right? Oh, I, I want something that fits me, right? Something that suits my desires and my own outlook. Jesus is like, that's not how it works. You don't just go out and try on religion like you go to the, you know, the department store and try on coats. There's only one coat. I am the way, the truth, and the life. See? To, to follow a man that says that puts you against the world. And, but it's not just that. He also says, right, I have that all authority, all authority, Every ounce of authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
over all the cherubim and over all the seraphim and over all the living creatures and all the 24 elders and all the myriad upon myriad of angels. I own them. I, I wield absolute authority, not just up there, but down here. Jesus, Jesus is not just a leader among other leaders. He's not just a, a governing personality amongst other democratic personalities. He stands in a category all by himself. There is no comparison by degree. He is in a category all alone. There is only one. And he says, right, at some point, every knee is going to acknowledge that. Our world doesn't want to hear that. At some point, the absolute sovereign king is going to break into this world, and the world's going to go, wait, we didn't vote on it. He's going to say, it doesn't make a difference. All authority has been granted to me. And you know what? As followers, we bow to his authority willingly and joyfully because he has earned the right to rule us because he gave his life for us. There's, there's no president or king like him. So you, you, I said, just what makes it hard? Because of the identity of the one we're following. If we're going to be true to who he's, he's declared himself to be, the only way and absolutely sovereign, then we already stand against the world in what we believe and what we proclaim. But also what he, he came to do. <laughs> I've just described Jesus, and basically there are enemies out there who hate him in the world. But he comes down to a place that hates his authority, hates his the fact that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And he comes not to judge, but to be judged. He doesn't come to slay his enemy. He comes to be slain. The very enemies that hate his absolute yet gracious rule are the very enemies that he's come to win as brothers and family. And then he, you know, calls us to do the same. And a lot of this sermon that he's given to us, Sermon on the Mount, is, is in that very vein. How do you respond to a world that doesn't like you? How do you respond to a world that hates the truth about who Jesus said he was? Well, a lot of Christians are, 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 are fine to just react and return evil for evil. And Jesus is like, that's not the way I've taught you. That's not the way I showed you. To love your enemies. To pray for those who curse you, bless those who curse you. I showed you a different way. One of the hardest things about following Christ is that we're called to love people who don't like him. It's easy to love a, a child, if it's a good child, or some friend. But to love Someone who is unjust to some, love, love someone who is mean to love someone who has hurt you. That's when the going gets rough. But that's exactly what Jesus did, right? How did he, how did he confront the world? He confronted it with a cross. And then he turns and says, hey, you all pick up your little crosses because I've already borne the big cross and you need to follow me. Like this is how you're supposed to impact the world. And the same pattern that he set for us is the same pattern that we're to live out. 
The way to life, the way to resurrection is by way of crucifixion. The way to life is to take the narrow road of willingness to suffer for the sake of our, our king and for the sake of the world that's lost. And you ask the question, if I was a person who was spiritually lost, didn't know there was a God, didn't know that he loved me, strangled by my own shame and sin, how would I want to be treated? I'd want someone to come to me, to help me find the light, someone to help me find my king. One of the deepest ways that we can love our neighbors is not only by caring for their physical needs and emotional needs, but also their spiritual needs, by introducing them to the Lord. So here's this teaching. And the effect that it's supposed to have is cause us, as his people, to reflect. What road am I on? Am I saying I'm on the narrow, but I'm in fact my heart living on the broad road that's tied to earthly things? Or am I truly like living for my king, who is my sovereign, who gave his life for me? And am I continuing the mission that he started with my life? That is a hard road, but it is a road that is filled with joy and eternal fruit. So I hope this morning you will you'll just, if you don't reflect on it, then you're missing the point. That's part of the rhetorical effect of these two roads is to get us as God's people to think, which one am I on? Pastor Dan, which one are you on? Pastor Adam, which one are you on? Which one are you on? Hopefully this will used, be used by the Spirit of God to affirm to maybe make adjustments so that we know we are walking the way that Jesus has called us to walk as disciples. Amen. Father,